When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this episode, I interview New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist Robert Kolker on his new book, Hidden Valley Road which follows the remarkable true story of one American family who had six out of 12 children affected with schizophrenia. Robert and I discuss how science and society have struggled to understand and often inaccurately describe this mysterious mental health issue, past and current treatment options, how it's vital to change the narrative around mental health issues, and how to manage when living with someone who has a major mental health issue like schizophrenia. Before we begin, I want to tell you about something I am so excited about. You can now pre-order my new book, 101 Ways to Be Less Stressed. This book is packed with simple self-care strategies to help boost your mind, your mood, and your mental health. Right now, when you pre-order, you can get 20% off. This book is a great gift for holidays and birthdays, or simply just for yourself. Just go to drleaf.com for more details and to order. The link will also be in the show notes. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends and family and on social media. And now, on to today's interview. Robert, I am so thrilled to be interviewing you today. Your book that I have right here in front of me it has been devoured by not just myself, but my kids as well. And it's just phenomenal. It's earmarked. I actually showed you like these little marks all over the place. And the reason why it's so important is because this topic is so misunderstood and you handle it with such an exceptional, in such an exceptional way that makes something that's very scary almost understandable. So thank you for doing that. Being in the field that I am, it's a pleasure to have discovered you and your work. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad to be able to talk to you and to your audience. It's such an important subject and I'm thrilled that the book is able to shine a little light on it and hopefully remove some of the stigma. Oh gosh, it's going to do that. It's already doing that. So it's, it's phenomenal. So before we start, though, can you just tell my audience a little, they've heard your bio, but just a little bit more about yourself, maybe something that's not in your bio and why you do what you do and what keeps you motivated? My career really took shape at New York Magazine, where I wrote feature stories and cover stories for 15 years. And I, I have a reporter's training, but, but I, I ended up developing into writing narrative journalism, telling stories about people going through extraordinary circumstances, and quite often they were tragic. But really, the, the goal with each of these stories is to shine a light on an experience that, that 
readers might have thought of was foreign, but then once they read the story, they, they tend to relate to the characters and see that it's really not unlike the sort of things that they go through. And I'm traveling in, a, in the footsteps of a lot of wonderful nonfiction writers who, who do this beautifully, like Catherine Boo writing about the slums of Mumbai and Behind the Beautiful Forevers, or, or Michael Lewis writing about baseball economics and Moneyball, that just to take a complicated subject that you might yeah. never thought you were interested in, but to give it a human face is, is really the goal I have. Oh, well, you do it with such skill and it's captivating. And I mean, you, you've also written I've a couple of books there, The Lost Girls, which is a New York Times bestseller, which you did the same thing. And I mean, you just, it's just amazing what you have done and achieved. And you've achieved that goal. And this is such a scary topic. We This book, for those of you that are wondering what this book's about, it's about schizophrenia and how you unpack that in the story is brilliant. So can you talk a little bit more before we do? I'm going to actually read two paragraphs from your prologue that really captivated me besides underlining almost the whole book that captivated me. But I just want to read this because of the way that you, it highlights what you've just said, how you take a very challenging topic and then tell it in the form of narrative to help people understand more. So you say, this is a book about these kids hidden Valley Road and inside the minds of an American family and a large, Robert will tell you more about it, but these, a lot of these children in this family had schizophrenia or had di- been diagnosed with it. So this story is about children now grown, investigating the mysteries of their own childhood, reconstituting the fragments of their parents' dream and shaping it into something new. It is about rediscovering the humanity in their own brothers, people who most of the world had decided were all but worthless. It is about even after the worst has happened in virtually every imaginable way, finding a new way to understand what it means to be a family. I thought that was beautiful. So on that note, can you give us the big picture of this book and why you wrote it? And Well, you gave us the why you wrote it, but specifically why this particular topic? Sure. Thank you. So about four years ago, a friend of mine introduced me to two sisters who are in their 50s. Their names were Lindsay and Margaret. And they were looking for to meet a journalist or a nonfiction author who might be able to tell the story of their family as a work of nonfiction, completely objectively, you know, to sort of take Mm. the story wherever it followed that writer. As I met them, I got to know them. I I saw that they were the youngest in a family with 12 children, Mm. that they were the only girls, the two youngest were the only girls, and that six of their 10 brothers had a severe mental illness, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And the more they talked, the more I couldn't believe what had happened to this just one family. There was murder-suicide, there was child molestation, there was clergy abuse, there was many, like countless hospitalizations in, in, in the mental facilities, the police being called to the house many, many times, and just a, a saga after saga after saga. Mm-hmm. And as they were talking, I was getting pretty shocked. And, and mm. uh, what I noticed about the sisters is that they weren't shocked. They were actually rather upbeat because they had been spent decades recovering from the difficulties mm. of their childhood and now were very eager to share it with the world. And one reason for that is because they felt that their family was scientifically, scientifically significant, that they yeah. studied by the National Institute of Health and by other researchers to try to get some clues into the genetic source of schizophrenia, which you know, they, 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 this family doesn't solve schizophrenia. They don't mm-hmm. cure schizophrenia, but they have helped science tremendously. And the more I learned about that, the more I saw 
the beginnings of some hope in this story. And then, you know, beyond the scientific piece of this and, and how little we know about schizophrenia and how much we have to thank this family for, for moving the ball forward, there's also the story of the family itself, how they remained a family, how they stayed together, how the children grew up and were able to transcend so many of the difficulties of their early lives and care for the, 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 the sick ones and come to a new understanding about their parents' lives. To me, it was just an incredibly, overwhelmingly mm-hmm. human story that I, I, I was very, very privileged to tell. Yeah, it's captivating. And, you know, you also capture what I love about it is you capture the story of some of the researchers like Dr. DeLisi and how in in back in the early sort of 50s and 60s, how it was the schizophrenic mother, whatever that that, that term, I can never say that word, that caused, was always the mother's fault causing everything. And how, but with her as a mom, she she had two kids and she was a young scientist and at med school and how she was also kind of told that it's, it's listening to a lecture. It was, I think it was in her beginning of her career and some one had said, well, it's you know, the mother's fault. I'm just summarizing a very long part of well, the section of the book. And that was fascinating that you captured her journey too as a female scientist at that time trying to research and, and show that it's not you can't just blame the mother. The whole nature nurture debate and we've got to look further for causes and that kind of stuff. That was very interesting how you traced that story. So it was a story within a story. Yes, I, I, I love the opportunity to be able to write about some of the scientific researchers who, who got to know the family over decades. And Dr. DeLisi, her personal story, as you said, it, it, it connects brilliantly with, mm-hmm. with the saga of the Galvin family because, you know, psychotherapy in, in the middle of the 20th century was all about blaming mothers for mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. If you were a psychopath or a homosexual or had anxi- garden variety anxiety, or if you had autism, or if you had schizophrenia, they found ways to blame your mother for it. Yeah. And, and so here you have a family where, where the worst has happened and the, and the mother is taking the blame and she's dying for science to come through and prove that it's not bad mothering that caused this illness. She, she wants verification that it's genetic. And lo and behold, the researcher who she meets who is determined to find the very same genetic proof is a woman and a mother who has been batting up against those same biases, those same theories that beat up on women and on mothers. So to me, it was, it was, it was almost poetic what was happening there. Incredible. Actually, I love the way you say poetic because I also found that I like the story within the story because it was that concurrent battle that was going on at the same time. And and what's so interesting is how you, if you if we fast forward and we, we need to build, fill in the pieces of the puzzle, but if we fast forward to today, we still don't really understand schizophrenia. There's still a lot of questions around it, but at least we've progressed from you know the Freudian it's the mother's fault to but we've moved now to a more epigenetic factor and looking for that magic code that trigger that triggers the latent genes and that still hasn't provided all the answers either and, and just for the for the uh, I actually read, doing research the other day and picked up a, a recent article that you may have also come across it was released in August 2020 where they were talking about they did this massive meta-analysis on all the pretty much all the research has been done on a period of time on schizophrenia and they were saying that only point five percent can be attributed to genetic variants but that it's a combination of 
factors and you can't just look at one thing. You've got to look at the in, the nature, nurture and the, you know, the whole lot together and, and how we've got to be so careful of becoming so neuroreductionist. So we've almost swung. This is just, and I wanted your opinion. So this is the where I want to, to ask what you feel from all the research you've done, where it's swung from blame the mother to now blame the genes. And it's like we have gone from one extreme to the next and we've got to try to reach a more happy medium. How would you explain or discuss that sort of swing or move or how do you see it? It's interesting to me that that so many of the arguments about schizophrenia all are, are about nature versus nurture. That that for anyone paying attention to the way that schizophrenia manifests itself can can decide well it must run in the family. But then anyone paying attention to exactly how it's hereditary hasn't been able to nail down exactly how it works because it's not parent to child, yeah. it's not a recessive trait, and so it's it's a mystery in that sense. And so then people come forward and say, well, perhaps it's something in the environment, whether it's bad mothering or marijuana or head trauma or crowded cities or pollution or bad vitamins, you know, whatever the yeah. solution is that the debates start to run. So we're never really free of, of the debate of that question, particularly now in the era of, of epigenetics, as yeah. you said, you know, the, a genetic predisposition to a disease yeah. might not become live or operational without something in the environment to, to trigger it, right? So, yeah. so we have that question as well. That said, you know, there was so much to, I learned about, about schizophrenia mm. while working on this book, so many misconceptions. For one thing, I really thought that it was like so many other mental illnesses, like, like anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder, where, where the profession had really found a way to effectively medicate a lot of the cases of it. And that, that as long as you took your meds, you were pretty much more or less okay. And what I learned is that, as many of your listeners probably know, you yeah. know really nothing could be further from the truth. That the, yeah. the people who are, who are severely schizophrenic now are taking basically versions of the same drugs that people took 50 years ago. Exactly. No major innovations. Those drugs are symptom suppressors, but they don't mm -hmm. turn back the clock for patients. Mm -mm. There is some debate about how effective they are at all. They certainly make people more manageable as patients, which is a godsend in some mm -hmm. cases, but it's not, it's not a cure. And there doesn't seem to be a motivation within the pharmaceutical industry to really do any better because those drugs make money. So, mm -hmm. so that, that was one big surprise. And then the other big surprise is, is how disagreement still rages about exactly what schizophrenia is. Mm. We know it is, not, it is not a specific disease. It's not like a virus like COVID-19 where we yeah. know what it is molecularly. It is a definition. It's a syndrome. It's a name we give to a lot of symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the definition of schizophrenia ends up changing from generation to generation yeah. on how the profession decides mm -hmm. what it is. And so... That is, that is frustrating as well, mm. because it could be that five people who have schizophrenia or have a schizophrenia diagnosis now, those same five people 50 years from now might be diagnosed with five different brain conditions. Exactly. Schizophrenia may just be a symptom of something else, of five other things or 10 other things. Exactly. Same way that fever was it, 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 just because you have a fever doesn't mean you have a particular medical condition. You could have any number of medical conditions because of that fever, and mm. it's just the same way. 
That's the very logical way of looking at it. I love the example of the fever. Fever would be, it went from being an it to being a symptom of a whole lot of different illnesses and recognition that it's your body's way of fighting, whatever. And so schizophrenia, and I agree with that so much in, in the narrative that I work with in, in, the, in the field I work in, is also to bring in the narrative of any of these bipolar depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, not so much as an it, but more as a a description of symptoms of underlying some things. And it's never one thing. You know why? We've got this very neuroreductionistic, we're in a very neuroreductionistic age where we've, as I said, we've moved from blaming the mom to now blaming the brain and the genes. So we've kind of zoomed in on, on another thing because you're always trying to find one thing, but it can never just be we so complex as humans and that's what you really highlight in your book is that there's the complexity of humanity and the individual story cannot be overlooked in in the reason for that being a symptom along with a bunch of other symptoms so it's almost wrong for us to just dumped it in a box of schizophrenia and said that's it and looked at it as a whole combination of different things and i had this exact challenge i thought as i started the book i thought well if i'm going to write about six people who had schizophrenia diagnosis many decades ago, how on earth am I going to bring them to life? How am I going to show them as people? Because I didn't want to write a monster movie. And I, did, and I didn't want to have to write the book and be like, and then, it, then this brother went crazy. And then the next brother went crazy. And then we forget about it. But I quickly got over that anxiety when I met the three brothers who are still alive. Mm-hmm. And I saw just how different they were from one another and how they all have you know, their own personalities, how they're their own people, how they've been impaired by years of their, their condition and also of the medications, there, there certainly is no mistaking the fact that they are different from one another and that they are human beings in their own right. And so it, I exhaled a little bit and saw, well, this is, this is obviously not a problem. And, and further proof to me that this is not a cookie cutter condition. Mm. And, and that's why it's so difficult for, for people in the field, in the mental health field, to to work on this because there is no one pill that can solve it for mm-hmm. everyone else. Everyone, mm-hmm. there's a lot of trial and error and a lot of, a lot of personalization that has to happen and a lot of family support that has to happen too. Each case is so complicated that, that no wonder it's so hard to mm-hmm. bring out of the shadows and hard to really effectively treat. Exactly. And that's so well said. And you, you almost pose a, an unspoken question throughout your book that we're asking the wrong questions. You know, it, it, and it's what you've said, we've asked the wrong questions by trying to simplify it down like we do with medical, like the cardiovascular issues or diabetes. It's it, that my biomedical model, which is so symptom and then causative link and treatment. So clear cut, cookie cutter almost, even though there's complexity around each of those, we can't treat something like schizophrenia in the same way. We have to use different language or different questions that we need to ask. I think that that's kind of what I sensed when you were writing this book, that you were saying we've got to ask different questions here. Right. So the, you know, I, before I delve deep into the subject, I thought, well, if you have a mental illness, then there's, you've got to find the right molecule, the right, the right pill that will do the whatever needs to happen to your brain chemistry to set your brain right. Maybe you have a, and if, and if it's schizophrenia, perhaps it's a dopamine problem and you need to regulate your dopamine and then bingo. It'll be fine. <laughs> and, That's so uh, simple. <laughs> there just isn't an answer that way. And that's, that's frustrating. But, you know, then you might ask, why write a book about it if you don't have any answers? But the, to me, I think the breakthroughs that, that different researchers had who had had cross paths with this family are very inspiring and very hopeful. And they, they all happened just in the last couple of years. So it, it, I knew going into it that there would be some 
forward movement on the science by the end of the book and perhaps some reason to feel hope or optimism or satisfaction. So it's not, it's not solved, but it's not entirely hopeless, I hope. No, not at all. And your last, uh, the last chapter of the book, you make that quite clear where you summarize the kind of what's happened in a nice, simple way and how you land up with a conclusion. So I don't want to give your summary away. If there's one thing you should be worried about not getting enough of, it's enzymes. Enzymes are the workhorses of digestion. Nearly everyone lacks digestive enzymes, and that's why we suffer from digestive issues like bloating, indigestion, and gas. You're not what you eat, you are what you digest. We lose enzymes as we age, so if you don't have enough enzymes, you might only be absorbing 40% of the foods you are eating. What a waste. My go-to enzyme, and the one that really works, is Masszymes by Bioptimizers. For the fastest shipping, go to www.bioptimizers.com forward slash DrLeaf and use the coupon code DrLeaf10 to save up to 48% of select packages to get the most full-spectrum and effective digestive enzyme product ever. That's code DrLeaf10 for 10% off your order at bioptimizers.com forward slash DrLeaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Could we talk a little bit about that that last chapter, and then I'd love to go and explore a little bit about the story, the narrative behind this. So just as a, so people can place it in position of, you know, what is it and what is the hope? Where have we come from? So we've come from blaming the mother to where are we now? So from your research and in that last chapter, which is an excellent summary, there's a couple of things that you, and I'll just, I'll just prompt you and then you take it away. Things like our culture looks at diseases like problems to solve and you give the example of polio and we imagine every ailment to be like polio, hopelessly incurable, then the drug comes along, boom, it goes away. And that model is tends to create a silo effect where we don't get enough, scientists don't collaborate maybe enough, and there's a confirmation bias involved, and that keeps science almost stuck in one way of thinking and not growing. And then you go through, that progress happens gradually, and this is, and then you really take it into, you talk about the neurodiversity and neuroleptic drugs helping to a certain extent, but then causing there's ample evidence that they, they also causes more damage. And there's a lot of research showing that if they stay on them long-term, shortens lifespan, 20, 15 to 25 years. And then there's been great projects like Open Dialogue Therapy and Soteria, you briefly mentioned, you don't mention those names, but you talk about that have been successful in dealing with schizophrenia, etc. So it's a great chapter. You talk about the epigenetics, etc. So I'd love you to maybe just walk us through the concepts there. Is that okay? Because you've covered so much beautiful stuff there. You know, the one question that's kind of riding through the chapter is if the Galvin boys got sick this year and not in the late 1960s and early 1970s, would life have been different for them? And, and the short answer is pharmaceutically, it wouldn't be so different, although they might not have been inundated with drugs, with, with pharmaceutical drugs. They might have been, it might have been more tightly regulated, but still, it's, there's no big game changer there. Mm-hmm. But there is slightly less of a stigma now, and there's more of an emphasis on early intervention. So just That's as one it. example, you have, you have Donald Galvin, the oldest of the 12 sons, who, who has his, the, the massive breakdown he had that brought him to the state mental hospital finally happened when he was about 25. And uh, the fact is that he had been having other smaller psychotic episodes for many years before mm-hmm. then, and in fact, might have had his first symptoms of of catatonia or of a disconnect from other people 
when he, as young as 15 or 16 years old. Mm. So that's nine or 10 years mm. of untreated mental illness. So the theory now and the hope is that you, if you could grab that 15-year-old and do a mix of therapy and medication now while their brain is still developing, you know, before adolescence ends and their brain is all hammered shut, and perhaps they can move through this and develop and, and avoid having so many psychotic breaks that it starts to affect their gray matter and severely impairs them and their life can be transformed. And so that, to me, that's the real hope now and the difference between now and then. Mm. I've discussed other things in the chapter, but, but to me, uh, the early intervention is the big, the big hope at the moment. I, I mean, love that. Also, I guess anti-medication, there, there's a suspicion of medication now. You mentioned Soteria. I'd, I'd love to learn more about that set of events. You know, there, there is a whole school of thought now about, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see it with autism and with other conditions about, about trying to embrace neurodiversity. There, there is a, voices, there, voices, exactly. Yeah, there's a, there's an aspect of this in schizophrenia as well, where where hearing voices isn't necessarily so abnormal. Even hallucinations, people have them, mm-hmm. and they move forward. Not every you, you don't. The, the the real question is what do you what do you treat with a sledgehammer, and what do you treat with a scalpel, and what do you treat with nothing at all? You know, how do you mm. how, how to how to interact with those conditions? It's very excellent. It's, it's like how to balance it. It's, it's, it's become more, much more preventative. You've got, I think, the rise of the anti-psychiatry movement and the Hearing Voices Network and those have actually opened up eyes to another view. And there's a lot of research, as we mentioned, showing that people with no drugs, but just a lot of support helping them to make sense of the delusions and the voices and the psychotic breaks, which are ex- extreme when your mind just can't handle whatever it does, it splits. And instead of seeing that as an incurable illness, it's seeing it as a way of a person coping. So there's that shift isn't there there's been a shift to wow that's a symptom that's terrible that's a lifelong sort of uh, how cancer was seen a few years ago to a okay let's try and help make sense of that so it's much more hopeful now even though they don't have one cause but you know Robert I don't think that that's such a bad thing that I think this this desire for us to try to treat mental mind issues uh, related to a neurobiological biological cause is a bit of a paradox because what comes first the cause or is it the cause or the effect because you talk about research where they found that the cerebrospinal fluid was increased in certain parts of the ventricles of the brain and the hippocampus and amygdala and you know there's been so many different variations of that over the years but no one can say if it's a cause or an effect. You know, we see with the research I do, you see someone who is extremely depressed, their brain looks one way, you give them mind management and their brain changes because of neuroplasticity. You know, so we're in the era of that level of hope, which, you know, you've alluded to in your book as well, which is is so exciting. So I, I love how you've handled it. It's really a, that last chapter, if, if anything, I think that's a great place if people have got family or loved ones that are battling with schizophrenia. I just think just if they started with that last chapter, they, it just gives you a big picture and then dive into the whole narrative. It's so hopeful. So I want to thank you again for doing that. Do you want to say more about that chapter or do you want, can we dive into the narrative and the stories to tell us a little bit about the story? I'm happy to talk about the narrative. Okay. I mean, this, I mean but from the moment I, I first talked to the, the two sisters in the family, I learned that the 12 children in the Galvin family span the baby boom. The, the, the oldest child, Donald, was born in 1945, and the youngest, the girl, Lindsay, was born in 1965. Wow. So they, they were, it was a perfect example of, of mid-century American prosperity. Baby boom. 
and and ambition and optimism. You know that they Lots when they lived kids, out in out west, they were you know dad taught at the Air Force Academy and you know mom made the made the kids learn how to identify mushrooms and listen to opera and as the boys grew up they were all state football players and hockey players and popular and good looking and mm. everything seemed wonderful and and in fact that the parents were very invested in how wonderful it was they were very happy to be a model family and to to seem famous to everyone this is the family with the 12 children they all um, they, seem so great and perfect right and so then then things go things start to turn as Donald, the oldest, goes off to college. So we're in the mid-1960s now. And he starts to decompensate at different moments in college. And, and the, the university forces him to go into counseling and to get analyzed. And the parents have a, have a decision to make. And they have to decide whether to, med- to treat this as a medical problem or try to ignore it. Because if it's a medical problem, then given the times that they were living in and the stigma of mental illness mm. and the way that mothers are blamed for a lot of it, the, the parents would, would then, their community would end up judging them. They would no mm. longer be that model family. But also, more importantly, Don, the father could lose his job or mm. his career prospects could dry up. They had wow. just moved to this new phase of life where the father had gotten this very prestigious job as an advisor to the governors of the states in the American West, political job, a, vis- a highly visible job. If suddenly he were managing a son with schizophrenia, that would, that would sort of put, the, put an end to that career track entirely. Mm. But, more, but even more important than that, you have 11 other children to worry about. What's mm. going to happen to them if the world knows they have a mentally ill brother? Will it taint their future? will have ruined their chances. And so you see this very wow. human moment where the, where the parents decide, they decide, well, maybe Donald just needs to grow out of it. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. it's all going to be okay eventually. Let's, let's shop around for a doctor who can sign off on his mental health for now, get him back in college and hope for the best. And then they keep doing that. They keep kicking the can down the curb and they do it with another son too, who is mm-hmm. married and, and not living at home. And then one day that son's wife comes to them and says, he's been hurting himself. He's been jumping into lakes and hitting his head against walls and staying up all night. He's paranoid. He believes people are out to get him. He's delusional. He's abusing me. He's hitting me. And they, again, they choose to deny it because they, they think they don't want to interfere. It's another, they find ways to rationalize not doing it. They also don't tell their son's wife, that there's another son who's mentally ill either, that the secret's wow. just piling up over and over as the, as the years go on. Until finally, Donald is hospitalized in 1970, and then the, wor- then, then even, then the dominoes begin to fall even more. Another son, Michael, sorry, Brian, is mentally ill and uh, living out in Sacramento. He kills his girlfriend and then kills mm-hmm. himself. Another son, Peter, is just 14 years old. A few weeks after he witnesses the father have a stroke, he has a breakdown and is hospitalized and has his psychotic break. And then two more, Matthew, a couple years later, strips naked at a neighbor's house and and breaks a vase before he's hospitalized. And Joseph gets fired from his job and starts writing threatening letters to the president. Wow. Eventually hospitalized as well. And so it gets very... Things get very grim. The younger children are, they, they are sort of cast to the winds for a while. The youngest ones, the two girls, 
are are on the receiving end of a lot of the cruelty of the older brothers. The mm. one sister gets airlifted out by a wealthy friend of the family and gets to live with them for a couple of years. The other one angles to go to boarding school just to get away. Mm. And and at this point, you think, well, that's the end of the Gallen family. Like, how mm. could it possibly survive? And then yeah. the strangest thing happens: the the children grow up. And the, and the sisters start to move through their trauma and their tragedy, and they both move back to, Colo- the, come to Colorado, and they both build lives, and one of them becomes the caregiver for the sick brothers, and they both come to a new understanding of their mother and the decisions she made over the years. The second half of the book is filled with a new mm. and different perspective of the family, and it really is a structured that way to be a multi-generational saga. So in part one, you get to know the parents and you start to judge them a little bit. And in part two, the children start growing up and you start to see the parents with different eyes and start to, to rethink everything you once thought about this family. And you meet Dr. Delisi and the medical researchers and you start to get a little bit into the nitty gritty of, of, of what schizophrenia is and, and, and what the family has to contribute to that understanding. Gosh, it's phenomenal. You just, it's captivating. And, you know, it's just like shows you how if we don't as, as society handle or, or handle things like mind issues correctly, the impact that it can have, like those parents were doing their best. But as you say, in the first half of the book, you almost feel like you're judging them because look what he would have lost his job. And there's all those things that the reasons that they rationalize until it gets to this extreme state that they cannot anymore in the family tragically falls apart. I mean, how that mom was handling everything with the dad. Once you said he, the father had, you know, the father had a, had a, a stroke, I think you said it was, the husband. And so, you know, she, so it's just one tragedy after another. It's just a huge. And so I'm interested to know how a woman that approached you, the two sisters that were the youngest ones, when they approached you first, you started off our interview telling us about them. I'm interested to just hear the, their whole goal, you said, was to help people to understand schizophrenia and how they had gone full circle. Can you talk a little more about that, the growth that they went through and how they're now seeing it from the parents' side and wanting to help the world with schizophrenia? What do they say about it? How do they Well, these women feel? Both are married and both have kids. If you ran into them at the supermarket or, or uh, at, on a ski slope you know, or, or, or anywhere, you they wouldn't stand out in any particular way. They're perfectly nice, sociable people. Yeah. So it's only by talking with them, you see that they have a certain hypervigilance, that they have mm. you know, that they've done a lot of work to move past the difficulties of their childhood. And so my immediate thought when I first met them was, well, this will be a story about how two sisters helped each other survive a, a traumatic childhood, or at least that mm. was the story. But then as I got to know them, what I learned is that while they were at some point very helpful to one another and close to one another, there were other moments when they, they had very differing views of how to deal with the family and that they clashed with one another. And so that concerned me briefly, but then I realized that that actually is more true, you know, that, that all of us who have siblings mm. experience our families differently from how our, fam- our siblings experience. Exactly. And, and so you, what, what, I, what the reader ends up getting in Hidden Valley Road is two different sisters dealing with very similar traumas in very different ways. And I thought that that might be something that, that readers might really appreciate because then they can sit back and go, well, if something like this had happened to me, would I behave more like one sister or would I be more like the other one? And I think it, it makes the book even that much more relatable, even though what's happening in the book may not be something close to what's happened in your family. We all can see how what it's like to grow up and think about your family in different ways and your siblings in different ways. 
I love that. I love that that angle. That's and I'm so glad that you explained it like that because it really is true, isn't it? That you no one sees anything. You've you've actually given people the the permission to see their families differently. It's almost like you could say, oh, it's okay. I don't have to think exactly like my sibling or the sort of rules around a family. It's actually the unique perspective that is very important for us to honor and validate. And you do that so beautifully in the book as well. Are uncomfy bras messing up your mental health? Joking aside, uncomfortable bras are really not something we need in our lives. That's why I'm so thankful I found Third Love. Third Love has hands down the most comfortable bras ever. And they fit perfectly thanks to their accurate Fit Finder quiz. And they're the only bra company I know that offers half cup sizes. If you don't love it, you have 60 days to return it. And returns and exchanges are free and so easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 10% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash drleaf now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 10% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash drleaf for 10% off today. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. What were some of the most challenging interviews or moments through the process of writing this book? And, and, and how did it make you feel? Did, you know, about just about mental health and yourself and life. And you know, let's like, dig into that side a little bit, how your experience of this whole thing was. I have a lot of training in, in speaking with vulnerable people who have been through difficulties. So I was ready for that part of it. I can't say that I'm, in, that I'm invulnerable to, to writing about traumas. I mean, obviously it affects me. And so I've got to find ways to work on that. But a couple, I had a couple things in going for me in this sense. The first was that a lot of the most brutal and terrible things that happen in this book happened many, many decades ago. So I could talk with people about it in a kind of a clear-eyed way. And, pe- and it was not like pulling teeth. People were ready to and more than happy to discuss it because it not, it's not like it happened yesterday. They had I have done some processing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I've worked on other things where, where it's happening right now and, and it becomes mm. very, very difficult you know, where you're really in the thick of it. And then the other part of it is that I had the privilege of being able to weave together multiple perspectives from people who had not necessarily compared notes much themselves. So mm. everybody was kind of learning something new. There are things in the book that some that I learned from the younger siblings that some of the older siblings who I interviewed had never known because they had left mm. the house already and it just had never come up. And so to me, that's the beauty of, of heavily researched nonfiction writing. Mm. It, you can tell a story that that really nobody even knew existed until you compiled all the little bits and pieces, all the puzzle pieces together and made it, made it into a finished work. That task as well. I mean, that said, there are huge challenges there because things happened decades ago and people's memories are fuzzy. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of cross-referencing and trying to figure out what happened when. There is a scene in the book, a memorable scene where Thanksgiving is destroyed because there's a fight between the brothers and the table gets turned over. You know, nobody remembered exactly what year that happened. It's not like anybody wrote it down in their diary saying, you know, 1976 was the worst yeah. Thanksgiving ever. They, they just, they, they've moved on. They can't, they can't be sure what year it is. And so I had to go and figure out, well, who was home at the time and where were they living and find other clues to figure out what year it had to be, you know, when it was happening. Things, things like that were challenging. The technical part of re- yeah. the narrative was challenging. And then finding a way to write about the science where it doesn't feel like homework, you know, where it doesn't feel mm. like telling people to eat their vegetables, you know, trying to make sure <laughs> that it's relevant to the, to the family story and that it helps 
sort of create a sense of, of suspense where you're like, oh, really? You found out that? Then what's going to happen? As opposed to, oh, God, now I have to sit in it for a lecture about neurobiology, which I, I really didn't want to do. No, you did this beautifully. The way you wove it in, it is. It's like a story of, okay, so there's some sort of an answer. And now it's like watching a movie almost. I mean, you do, you create it into a movie in your mind. And it's, I love it. It's, it did, it creates a, a suspense. And then your chapter at the end is nice and succinct and clear and it's simple, but you've woven it and it makes sense. You pull it, pull it all together. So that was masterfully done, I must say. There was, a, I, I'm just looking at this, I wanted to ask you this question. You ask a question in your book that really resonated with me. And we did briefly talk about this earlier, but I wanted to just come back to it. It was on page 322, and it is, what if these breakdowns and even suicides could be prevented by shoring up the mind's vulnerability before things get worse? And the reason, and I'd love you to just explore that a little bit, the reason that really resonated with me is because the work that I do for 38 years now and working with such a large diversity when I was practicing clinically and now doing research and so on has been to help people to manage their minds in a preventative way. So yes, the toxic traumas have happened. So this is how we, and then they're part of you, we've got to deal with them and we've got toxic habits and we go through the day and things happen like COVID or someone gets ill or something that unexpected but then there's also the day-to-day mind management and from my research it's been very clear and from what I've done with mind and so on that if we can manage our minds we can actually change the structure of our brain which is very that means very accepted science a mind-brain connection but we can also shore up our resilience and there's a lot of science around that we can really be you can't prevent everything but you can have more strength mentally and physically so in the brain and the body and in the mind and all working together in a much more networked way that when the things do come we're just a little better at managing them and so that's kind of a preventative thing and that's what I've tried to do with my work and what I still do with my work so when I read that it totally captivated me because I agree that we need to be from very young at school shoring up people's minds and preparing them for the event the inevitable circumstances and events that we cannot control or things that we cannot control. You know, you kind of, you've spoken a little bit about that, but you've got this vulnerability. And if we can shore up our minds, we can be a little bit more prepared for that. So did that come out of everything? What do you want to say about that? It was fascinated me that. Well, I think, you know, that that's the other, that's the other thing that's really dominated my understanding of mental health in the last 20 years. The first one being if you have the right pill, you might be able to regulate your mental illness. But the but the other the other one was is is neuroplasticity. The idea that you can carve a new neural pathway and retrain your brain, yeah. So you don't, so that you can avoid catastrophic thinking or or whatever it is you might yeah you might doing. And so it's a it's a very hopeful thing. In the context of schizophrenia, there's something called the vulnerability hypothesis that really is quite old. Actually, it's from around mm-hmm. the early '80s or perhaps the late '70s. It's the notion that your genes don't say, you know, on your 21st birthday, you will have schizophrenia. They are merely a, they are merely a blueprint for what could happen. And, and you are, so what you are inheriting isn't schizophrenia or a gene for it. You're inheriting a vulnerability toward developing mental illness. And so that means you grow up vulnerable and perhaps there will be a trigger that makes it more, oper- more, more of a player in your life, or perhaps it won't be. So maybe one day you'll get your heart broken and it'll trigger a psychotic episode, or maybe you'll be hit in the head while playing mm. football or you witness a car crash, or maybe you'll smoke pot. And maybe the, in theory, these are all things that might be able to trigger your vulnerability. And so one of the researchers who studied the Galvin family, Robert Friedman, started to wonder, what if coming up with a medicine for a patient with schizophrenia is, is too late? 
What if, what if you're never going to cure that person? What if, the, what if the real thing we ought to be doing is finding a way to make people at a very young age less vulnerable? Even if, that, where even if you inherit that vulnerability, what if we could shore up the brain and strengthen mm-hmm. it, make it slightly more resilient so that it could counteract with other, whatever genetic vulnerability you have? It turns out that, as we know, the brain develops, that it's, yeah. uh, you, aren't born with a fully, you aren't born with a fully developed brain. So it stands to reason that if you could have a stronger and better brain health at an earlier age, yeah. you'd be able to be more resilient going forward. And then in the late 80s, there was a new theory about schizophrenia called, not to lay too many theories out, but called the developmental hypothesis. The idea being that schizophrenia is a developmental disorder, Mm. that that Mm. you inherit, you don't, it's not just that you inherit the vulnerability, it's that there are different inflection points that where where all, all along the way things sort of are going wrong without you knowing it. And then once you're, once you're, once your brain is completely or more or less completely formed at the end of adolescence or at the beginning of post-adolescence, mm-hmm. or early 20s, that's when suddenly it's clear that something is wrong with the engine mm-hmm. that, that you've been building all this time and you start to run into real trouble and have psychotic episodes. So the question is, can we, can we change the course of brain development over time? Dr. Friedman, who studied the Galvin family, came up with a hypothesis that a certain organic nutritional supplement, choline, could be better better for brain health. And that if you put it in a prenatal vitamin, the same way folic acid is in Mm -hmm. prenatal vitamins to prevent cleft palate, it could not just contribute to better brain health, but it could actually prevent certain varieties of psychosis or of schizophrenia down the line. We don't know if this is true or if this will work, but they're testing it. They're, They're testing it, yeah. There are kids who are doing very well. They're four or five years old now, so we won't really know for sure. But another twenty years, yeah, fifteen years. Mm. Very hopeful. Definitely. Oh, that's amazing. So that actually leads us. It's much more logical than just it takes away the total nature, total nurture, and it brings in a combination of and helps us to look at a multiplicity of factors. And then there's also the whole scientific side, I mean, the neuroscientific side, where they're looking at the impact on the brain. And if we could just move away from it always being the cause, because I think that's that's stunted the research where they've tried to find the neurobiological cause or the gene. And that billions of dollars later and years later, that hasn't actually man- hasn't told us any story. And then you get the situations that we mentioned earlier on, like the Soteria Project and Open Dialogue, where over, over a sort of period of two years with with a lot of family intervention and support and that kind of stuff and professionals involved and medications used more like an anesthetic for surgery if and when needed in an episode that there's been such success. So I, I love all that you've captured all of that in the book, though, that so much hope in the book. It's a book of hope, isn't it? Yes, I like, and it, it was hard for me to explain that to people while I was working on it. They were like, are you kidding me? And I was like, no, it's really helpful, honest. So I'm glad that you think that, that now that it's done. It is. It's a book of hope because you said in the beginning, the way that something like schizophrenia has been depicted in the past of movies and things, it's been really scary, hopeless, like those out there things, but you've made something that's out there, something that, hey, we still don't really understand and this exists, but it's part of our human experience and we can actually 
do something about this. So, you know, that's a great message that you've brought through. So, okay, so we've we've talked for so long. I want to ask you one more question. And then you did mention it briefly, but one aspect of the book that I really loved was how you focused on the Galvin children that weren't diagnosed. And you've brought that up with the sisters and how they, so in the midst of all that, some of them, you mentioned briefly that they had some experience, quite severe abuse and abuse and had to go and live in other places. And that was can you talk a little bit about when there's a family that's got a sick child or a child who's challenged with mental illness, how does it affect the siblings and the parents and that whole dynamic of the others that are involved trying to support the person who's battling? Well, the, the six non-diagnosed siblings are all still alive and they're all you know, having nice lives. And, and it, was a, it was a thrill to get to know them all. They are all very different from one another. What they share, if I, if I were forced to, to talk about something they have in common, I think it would be a certain hypervigilance because you, you are a certain feeling of walking on eggshells because I mm. think you, you never really get rid of that. If you're growing up wondering what's going to happen next in the house, whether yeah. not just the brothers you know are sick might do this or might do that, but also one day you may wake up and find that yet another brother is sick or... Mm. One day you wake up and maybe wake up and find that you're the one who is sick. Mm. So I don't think any of them have ever really gotten past the feeling that they might become severely mentally ill mm. one day, even though they're now at an age where everyone's told them, you know, it's not going to happen. So they know objectively that it's not going to happen, but still, but that's a hard thing to get past. Mm. They all have done what they need to do to, to, to lead functional lives. They, they, Many of them are, have really strong relationships with one another. You know, there, there are certain exceptions where there's one brother, really nice guy named Mark, who, who really grew up as a part of a tight unit with three other brothers who were very close to him in age. They played sports together. They were basically each other's best friends. And all three of those other brothers, they all developed schizophrenia. So it's a little like he was orphaned in his own family. Oh, that wow. He still has tender relationships with a lot of people in his family, and of course, his parents, both of whom are deceased now. Yeah, but still, like it's a little like he's alone in his own family. The loss still is something he really carries with him, mm. and something like that is really, really something to see. I think the you know the story of their of of their early years and dealing with the these these horrible mysteries that were sort of taking over the family, and then the silence around those mysteries. Mm was something that it was really one of my primary jobs to try to capture in the book. Mm, and you did that. You did that incredibly well. And the last thing about the, the parents, the mom, the dad, you know, their decisions, how they were handling it, how the kids felt and feel. Because I know that's, that's a big question, but maybe you can just give us a brief overview. I mean, I do think they chose to look the other way quite often in a way that mm. was very typical of their time. And in, in America in particular, where everything is in the 50s and 60s is this feeling of, triumphalism that you know mm. won the war everything's going well prosperity even vietnam yeah. doesn't feel like a problem at the time the counterculture hasn't quite swept up yet yeah why would there be any issues it's just boys being boys or they'll grow out of it or we shouldn't coddle them or all our troubles mm. as a society are over because we've perfected you know we we, we figured it out here in america american dream yeah <laughs> So, so I think that all of that bolstered them for a while as far as it could go. Yeah. And, and I think that the, uh, one of the questions I ask readers when I'm sitting with book clubs or whatnot on Zoom is I say, what do you think of the mother? Because in my opinion, 
the first half of the book is pretty tough on her. Yeah. She does some pretty bad things and a lot of denial and a lot of, you know, not, not helping people when they could have used help. Mm-hmm. But then in the second half of the book, I think as the children grow up, they start to see the parents with both parents with new eyes and reevaluate both their mother and their father. And to me, this is yet another relatable moment in the book. All of us see our parents with new eyes once we become adults, particularly if we become parents. And that is, to me, was an exciting part of the story to tell because, you know, there, in, in a book like this, I tried to, for there not to be any heroes or villains. I, I want there to be people who have different rationales, who, who sometimes bump up against other people and have difficulties. But it, it's but Mimi Galvin, the mother of the family, in some ways she's the villain, but in other ways she is indisputably the hero too. That's so well said, indisputably the hero and the villain due to the circumstances and certainly not choosing to be the villain, although she wouldn't have had the children or whatever for whatever reason. Wow, this is incredible. I mean, it's just a beautiful book, a beautiful story and a story of hope. And is there anything else you'd like to say in closing about maybe a pearl of wisdom or just a closing statement about what you hope to achieve with the book or anything or life? My deepest hope is that even if you haven't been touched by mental illness in your family or any of the other terrible things that happen to this yeah. family, you think people can, might be able to find something to relate to in terms of understanding how people process bad times, how they move through difficulties. I mean, among mm. other things, there are two sisters in this book who, are, who have terrible childhoods, and then they both move heaven and earth and work very, very hard for years and years to get past it. And they both succeed on their terms on their terms and that that's hopeful and i think instructive perhaps to to readers and that, mm. i think that's nonfiction does that like the reading i just read behind the beautiful forevers by Catherine mm-hmm. Boo, mm-hmm. and i learned about a family growing up in the slums of mumbai and i've never mm. been to mumbai and i'd never knew situation didn't know specifically what the situation was but now i'm caught up in 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 the soap opera of their lives and want to yeah. know more about it. And I, I've walked a mile in their shoes and I see that they are not quite so different from me. And I'm hoping mm. that that does this for mental illness. Oh yeah. You've definitely achieved that. I have to tell you that you've definitely on the, on the road, it definitely does bring a whole different perspective. So thank you for writing the book and thank you for spending this time with, with me and my listeners and viewers, it, just exploring this and the, the tremendous wisdom that you've brought to this very, it's been a very scary mind issue and it's now you've disseminated and unpacked it in a way that will help people to be a bit more accepting and um, see it differently. So thank you. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I really appreciated the chance to talk about it. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf.
This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.